1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of 13, and happy September! We want to start by thanking our new patrons. C.S., Caitlin Tiffany, Stacey Swaney, Bree, Chelsea Baum, Heather Miller, Brittany Danielle Myers, Kathy, Brian Lane, Kim K., and Vicki Banks. We couldn't do this without you. Our patrons get a second episode of 13 delivered directly to their patron-only RSS feed, access to a patron-only Discord server where you can chat with us and other fans of the show, bloopers, weekly updates, and more. Patrons also never have to listen to ads. We even have a $1 tier just for that. Find us at patreon.com slash 13pod. While we're at it, keep sending in those story submissions. We love all of our submissions, but we especially love to get them from our listeners because you all know the show best. If you'd like to submit a story to be performed on the show, email us at info at 13podcast.com and put story submission in the subject line. You can find our submission guidelines on our website, 13podcast.com. Look for a link in the show notes. All right, folks, September is finally here, and I've got big news. For the next few weeks until October 13th, we are going to be weekly. We have a five-part story for you beginning today. This is a big series with some of your favorite 13 guest voices returning, plus a couple of new ones. In this episode, we have our very own podcast girlfriend, Shelby Scott, returning to the show. You can and should hear more from Shelby at Scare You to Sleep. Follow or subscribe wherever you're listening right now, or look for a link in the show notes. Speaking of the show notes... Just a reminder that there are content warnings at the very bottom of the show notes, so it's easy to scroll straight to them or to avoid them if you don't want to see them. One last thing. If you don't want to wait for the next installment of this story, we're releasing it all on Patreon. We're still putting the finishing touches on the last couple of episodes, but as soon as they're done, they'll be up for patrons too. So if you can't wait to find out what happens next, Join us on Patreon and support independent audio drama. Okay, turn the lights down, get cozy. On with the show. I grew up where three medium-sized towns all come together and form a little city. It was called the Tri-Cities. My town was just past the suburbs. It wasn't rural exactly. Think of the very edge of a big metro area and then imagine the next town past it. That was us. I grew up in church and I really liked it there. It was the place where I'd always felt most comfortable. I looked forward to seeing my friends on Sunday mornings and again on Sunday and Wednesday nights. Friends from school came and went, but those core friendships from church always stayed the same. The church was still pretty small when I was a little kid, but a new pastor took over while I was in elementary school. And over the next few years, the church grew fast. In just a couple of years, they were building a whole new wing with a huge new sanctuary to accommodate everyone. The new side of the building was almost twice the size of the old side. That meant more families, and with more families, more kids were coming to youth group too. A few years later, they started building again. This time, a big youth wing on the other side of the original building. There was a gym with a basketball court, a big youth group area with couches and TVs and game consoles with all the new people and especially all the new kids in youth group. Things were different than those early days when we were just a few very closely knit families. But that just meant that there were more friends to love and there was still something special about that core group of us that had been here forever. One of the cool things about our church is that it was close to the high school. Our youth pastor convinced the church leadership to open the youth side of the building on weekday afternoons so that we could come and hang out after school. The thinking was that if we were at the church, we weren't out getting into trouble. This is a story about my senior year of high school. And most of this story will take place right inside those church walls. Not because the church had anything in particular to do with these events. It's because so much of my life took place there. It was the fall of 1998, and i just turned 18. There are three things that happened in the fall of 1998. I'm going to tell you about all of them. It was the year that a serial killer started operating in the towns around the Tri-Cities. It's the year I kissed a boy for the first time. And it's the year that I may have been possessed by a demon. So let's start from the beginning. The first day of my senior year of high school, was the day that they found the third body. It's when they officially announced that these three girls were believed to be victims of the same murderer. Three girls in three different towns in three months. They were all about our age. They were all taken from public places. The police came to our school to warn us about him. They gave a big presentation in the gym. The first girl was out at a bar at the edge of the Metro. It was her 21st birthday and she was just home from college on summer break. She stepped outside for some fresh air and she never came back in. Her body was found a week later. The next girl was at a bonfire in the woods where some kids were drinking and getting high. It was far outside of town, way out on a one lane road she was the first to leave the party just after dark she was going home but she never made it her car was found about an hour after leaving another group of kids who were leaving the same party drove up on her car in the middle of the road like she'd just come to a stop the driver's side door was standing open headlights still on engine running She was never found. The most recent one snuck out of her house to go meet her boyfriend. They lived in the same neighborhood and were planning to meet at a park. It was only a couple of streets over from her house. Her boyfriend arrived at their meeting spot and waited. He waited long past the time they were supposed to meet, thinking that her parents hadn't gone to bed at their usual time, or she'd fallen asleep. He sat on the swings for an hour before giving up and going home. The next morning, her parents found the back door still unlocked from where she'd snuck out. She'd been intercepted somewhere between her house and the park. That last girl, the one who never made it to the park, she went missing a week before school started. It was her body that they found the morning of the first day of school. They were all the same type. Young women, high school or college girls, girls like me. We watched the state police presentation from the bleachers. They told us to stay vigilant, to stay in groups when we were in public, and to never separate from your group no matter what. The killer was striking often and not leaving a trace. His victims were in public. They weren't very far from other people places where he could have easily been seen. The police don't believe that these are his first victims. This guy knew what he was doing, and all it took was letting your guard down for a moment. The media and the police even gave him a name, the Tri-City Killer. It was all anyone talked about that day. What a way to start the school year. The fact that there was an active serial killer in our area changed a lot of things for a lot of people. But, honestly, life wasn't that different for me. My best friend Valerie, Val for short, lived one street over. We had always walked to school together, so when they warned kids to stay in groups, to never be out alone, we'd already been doing that. The only thing that changed was that Val's mom stood on her porch and watched until she got to my front door before getting in her car and leaving for work. The doorbell meant Valerie was out front. I gave my mom a hug and said goodbye on my way out the door. And me and Val started walking the five minutes to school. As we started down the street, I saw a couple girls dressed all in black outside Amy Peretti's house. Amy had been friends with me and Valerie when we were kids. She grew up in the church with us. She used to be part of that original group, until we had a falling out. I'll tell you more about Amy later. The only thing you need to know for now is that her friends and my friends don't get along. Since the youth wing of the church was open in the afternoons, a whole group of the youth group kids walked together to the church after school. The ones that had cars would sometimes drive us, but while the weather was nice, we walked. Not all the youth group kids came to church after school, not even most of us. But those of us who did became a really close-knit group. At 5 p.m., the church staff cleared out the new side of the building and locked the doors. So after five, we had the whole youth wing to ourselves. The doors in the youth wing were all push bars. So after the church staff locked them, they'd close and lock for the night after the last person left. Today, there's no way a church staff would just let kids hang out in the building alone. But the 90s were different. Also, youth pastor Tom stopped in to check on us after hours at least a couple times a week. but. There was a reason that we liked to go to church after school, beyond just hanging out with our friends. That reason was Cameron Reese, Cam for short. Cam and some of the other boys played basketball at the church gym after school. When we arrived that first day of school, the boys were already on the court me and Val found a couple of the open couches that were pushed up against the walls. Could you at least try not to stare? Oh no, was it that obvious? Val gave me a look that said yes, it was absolutely that obvious. I'd known Cam since I was a little kid. He was like Val and me. We'd all grown up together in this church. I couldn't remember a time before I knew him. and. As soon as I was old enough to start having crushes on boys, I had one for Cam. You should wear those jeans again. He definitely noticed you then. I could feel my cheeks turning red. She's talking about a specific pair of jeans that I have. I didn't realize it when I bought them, but they're designed to really accentuate certain parts of your body. I wore them to school last year, and when we came to the church afterward, youth pastor Tom pulled me aside. He told me that I should think about how the way I dressed could cause some of the boys to stumble in their faith.
0: I know this is kind of awkward, but it's important that we look out for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Boys your age, they aren't completely in control of their thoughts. Even the boys that you've known your whole life. They may be looking at you differently now that you're maturing.
1: I tried to explain that I wasn't intentionally trying to cause anyone to sin, and I hoped he believed me.
0: Look, you're a beautiful girl, and you're going to have a very lucky husband someday. I just don't want you to get the wrong kind of attention now.
1: I was mortified. And after that, I was never going to wear those jeans in public again. I respected Youth Pastor Tom. He'd always been there for us when we needed him, even if it sometimes felt uncomfortable. Speaking of Youth Pastor Tom, just then he walked into the gym. He stood in the doorway, as though assessing the room, taking stock of who was there. He called out for everyone to come over and gather around. Youth Pastor Tom, we called him that because that's how he introduces himself, spoke up and started by wishing us all a good start to the school year. And then he started talking about the missing girls.
0: So I want to let all of you know that things are going to be a little bit different this year. It's a scary time out there. We've got a dangerous man on the loose. So at least until they catch this guy, we're going to have some new rules in place. Now this is important. Rule number one, don't let anyone in that you don't know. Rule number two, nobody stays at the end of the night alone. The church leadership is committed to making sure that this space is available to all of you as long as we can follow the rules. If the adults have left and there are two of you here, you need to wait for the other one's parents to arrive before you leave nobody gets left behind waiting by themselves, and nobody walks home alone.
1: Val and I gave each other a look. We were usually the last ones out at the end of the night. That wouldn't be a problem.
0: Okay, there's one more thing that I want to talk about. Something that might be a little sensitive, but I think it's important. I want you to think about these girls. Think about the victims. What were they doing when this guy found them? Drinking, drugs, sex. I'm not saying that this was their fault, but a lifestyle of sin puts you in dangerous situations and it's an invitation for more sin. When you give the devil an opening, the devil will use it. He doesn't play fair. So watch out for each other, keep each other accountable, And most of all, keep each other safe.
1: I'm not sure I agreed with what he had to say about the girls bringing this on themselves. After all, the second girl left the bonfire because she didn't want to be around drugs. And the most recent one was sneaking out to meet her boyfriend, sure. But we don't know that they were going to have sex. But youth pastor Tom was right. If they hadn't gone to a bar gone to the party where there would be drugs, or snuck out in the first place, this wouldn't have happened to them. And he was right about another thing. The devil doesn't play fair. It's something Youth Pastor Tom told us a lot. And to explain why, it's time for me to tell you about what happened with Amy, the girl down the street. When we were in the sixth grade, Amy and I were still close friends. She was one of us in the original group of kids from church before it started growing so fast. All the girls used to have sleepovers and usually they were at Amy's house. She had a big basement, completely finished, almost like its own little apartment. We'd gotten our hands on a scary movie. It was about this group of high school girls who were witches. A new girl comes to their school and completes their coven. They have such a tight bond, and they can do magic together. Later in the movie, they turn on each other, and everything goes really bad. That's the scary part. But I always loved the first half of the movie, where they bond and become like sisters. I kind of felt like that with the youth group girls. I won't pretend I was completely oblivious. I'd heard about witchcraft, and heavy metal music, and I knew that Christians weren't supposed to like those things. But we were kids, and it looked like so much fun in the movie. It became part of every sleepover for the next few months. We watched the movie, we played little games, light as a feather, stiff as a board. We put together a kind of homemade Ouija board, and we made our own tarot cards. We tried smoke manipulation, where you can concentrate on smoke from a candle or incense and make it straighten out or bend however you want it to. That one never worked. I knew it was wrong, but some part of me liked the spookiness of it. There was a sense of danger, a kind of magic. The last night that we had a sleepover at Amy's, We played Bloody Mary. Five of us crammed into the downstairs bathroom and lit a candle. Amy turned off the light and we said her name, Bloody Mary, once, twice. And just as we said her name one last time, Amy blew out the candle and we were plunged into darkness. There were giggles and surprised squeals, but I didn't make a sound. As the light went out, I had a different reaction. I stared hard into the mirror, and at the last second before the light vanished, I looked into a face that I could have sworn wasn't mine. We never found out who did it, but someone told their parents what we were doing at those sleepovers in Amy's basement. Our parents had come of age during the satanic panic in the 80s. They watched news specials about satanic vandalism in the cities. Bands putting satanic messages in their albums if you played them backwards. They'd put so much energy into sheltering us from all of that. But it found us anyway. Within hours, the news of what we'd been doing spread to all of the parents at the church. It became its own little panic. There was an emergency meeting where we all came together at the church and the pastors and our parents prayed over us. I still remember walking into the church that night. It was one of the first cold nights of the year, passing the dark Sunday school rooms on our way to the fellowship hall. The place felt off. We all sat in a circle while our parents stood over us and prayed that any demonic influence that had crept into our spirits would be driven out. It was supposed to be reassuring, but honestly, it was terrifying. The pastors walked around from one of us to the next and begged God to save us from ourselves. I hadn't been afraid before that night. I hadn't really taken any of this that seriously. But if this is the kind of response it deserved, I must have been playing a very dangerous game. There's a word for this in evangelical circles. It's called spiritual warfare. It's the idea that you can open yourself up to dark spirits, demonic spirits, The fear with spiritual warfare and demonic influence isn't that you'll become possessed like in The Exorcist. The real fear is that demonic influence is just that, influence. Those spirits will slowly and carefully try to lead you away from God and the church. And according to everyone, from Youth Pastor Tom to Billy Graham, Spiritual warfare is happening all around us, all the time. Demonic influence is everywhere. It's infiltrated popular culture, music, movies, books, and TV. And it very gradually leads you away from God's truth. A lot of the time, they would simply call it following the world instead of following God. And without realizing it, over time, You've separated yourself from God. You've allowed yourself to be lured away. That night was the first time that I heard that phrase, and I think about it all the time now. The devil doesn't play fair. We weren't allowed to have sleepovers for a while after that. Our parents kept us apart outside of church. I didn't see the other girls very much. But Amy lived right down the street. Before all of this, the two of us spent more time together than any of the others. But now, we waved to each other from a distance. And that was it. Amy didn't take any of this well. Her parents wanted her to do counseling with the new youth pastor, Youth Pastor Tom. I guess it didn't go well because soon after that, her family started going to a different church. And then Amy stopped going to church altogether. Mrs. Hart, Emily Hart's mom, had been one of the unofficial youth group leaders and she tried to reach out to Amy, but it was no use. I guess Amy had made up her mind After a few months, when summer break started, all of our parents let us start hanging out again. We even had sleepovers again. We invited Amy to come back, but she never did. She and I had been so close. It hurt. It felt like all of a sudden she didn't care about me anymore. Like I was nothing. When we started seventh grade, she was hanging out with the girls who wear black and listen to metal music. The whole group of them made up names for themselves like Raven and Samara. Pretty soon, Amy became one of them. But as for me, I didn't change. She went one direction and I went another. Five years later, we still live down the street from each other, but we don't talk. A couple of weeks went by, and we were fully settled into our senior year of high school. We had youth group on Sunday nights, and the first Sunday night of September, youth pastor Tom made an announcement. It was time to start preparing for the walk through hell. The walk through hell was our church's big Halloween event, a Christian alternative to the secular haunted house, and the youth group were the ones who put on the show. It ran every Thursday through Saturday for the month of October. Everyone from church came and it was open to the public so a lot of people from other churches came too. Even though it still felt like summer, fall was just around the corner and October would be here before we knew it. The premise of the walk through hell is exactly what it sounds like and it's one of my favorite times of the year. It's a way to enjoy the spooky season without having to participate in the secular world's idea of Halloween. But it wasn't just the event itself that I loved. The whole youth group spends weeks rehearsing for our roles in the show. We build massive sets and decorate the entire youth wing of the church. It's a huge undertaking and there's a kind of camaraderie that comes with it. You know how it is when you spend that much time with a group of people all working towards something together it's a bonding experience I don't like being scared but even something as scary as the walk through hell doesn't bother me when I'm surrounded by my friends the preparations for the walk through hell would start right away and it would take most of next month here's how the whole production would go the audience would come through in groups Each group would start out in the gym where they'd stop and see three skits before they got to the really scary stuff. The lights would come up on a set that was made to look like a party house. One of the youth group kids would go from room to room in the party house and act like they were drinking or doing drugs. Then they'd pretend to overdose and die. The spotlight would move to another room at the party where two other youth group kids would start dancing and they'd sneak away to another room. The implication, of course, was that they were sneaking off to have sex. Fast forward, and they're driving away together after the party, and they die in a car wreck. There would be a couple more scenes like that. You get the idea. Once all the scenes are over, the lights will go down, and the crowd will be escorted through the door to the hallway between the gym and the rest of the youth wing. That's where they'd enter a maze that was almost completely dark. It's meant to feel claustrophobic. It symbolizes being lost and separated from God. But I also think it's just meant to be scary. It's a haunted house, after all. After they get through the maze, there's a section of hallway that's made up to look like a cave. It's just heavy-duty brown industrial packing paper, all crinkled up and held up on a scaffolding that arches over the hallway. When the lights are off, and all the other props are in place, it looks very real. This is the walk through hell. It's the scariest part of the haunted house. Most of the youth group kids will be there. Basically, anyone without a speaking role. A few of the kids will be dressed to look like the ones in the opening skits who had committed sins and then died and the sins that condemn them are going to be written on the walls of the cave over them. The rest of us are dressed as other people condemned to hell. The cave will have strobe lights and speakers playing loud, scary organ music. This is the part of the show where I always end up, and that's fine with me. As far as I'm concerned, the idea of a speaking role is more terrifying than anything else in the show. Once the crowd gets through the hell cave... They'll end up in the sanctuary, where Jesus is up on a cross. Jimmy Barrow will play Jesus, like always. He's the only boy in youth group with long hair. Youth Pastor Tom will give a sermon about how Jesus can save you from the hell you just walked through. And then they ask for donations, and the show is over. The show starts every hour from 7 to 10 on Thursdays and until midnight Friday and Saturday. And every show is usually a packed house. The whole youth group would work on building the walk through hell. But those of us who came to hang out at church after school would be the ones who did the vast majority of the work. And that was fine. It made sense. We were just there more. The boys mostly stayed together, building the scaffolding and frame for what would become the maze and hell cave portion. The girls worked on the sets for the scenes at the beginning of the show. But it wasn't completely separated by gender. Everyone did a little bit of everything. I usually liked having time with the other girls while the boys were off doing their own thing. But this year, something changed. The following Monday, after we all got to the church and got to work, I thought I saw Cam sneaking glances at me when he thought I wasn't looking. I tried not to make it obvious that I knew, and I told Val about it. It kept happening all week, and I'm pretty sure he caught me a couple times, too. I was hoping he'd find an excuse to break away and come talk to me. But small-town dating is complicated. Friend groups are so intertwined. You didn't make a move unless you were certain of the outcome. If it went the wrong way, everyone would know that you'd put yourself out there and gotten rejected, and that would be humiliating. Nonetheless, Val kept egging me on to make the first move. But there was no way that was going to happen. That Friday night, after the first week of construction on the walk through hell, I sat awake in my room. I was having trouble sleeping. Nothing in particular was keeping me up. I just couldn't sleep. When this happens, my mind wanders. And that night, lying in bed, my mind wandered to Cam. I closed my eyes, and I imagined the youth wing of the church after school. It was just the two of us. Me and Cam. The last ones. In my fantasy... I was wearing those jeans. The ones that youth pastor Tom told me I shouldn't wear around boys like Cam. But I felt sexy and confident in them. In my fantasies, I'm not self-conscious and shy like I am in real life. I'm mysterious and alluring. And he was the one trying to figure out how to get my attention, not the other way around. I told him that I needed something from the other side of the church, and we walked together out of the youth wing. We went through the long hallway that arced around the church's old sanctuary. There was a red glow far ahead of us coming from the exit sign. In the rooms on either side, a purple twilight was coming through the windows and filtering out into the hallway. We kept going. The tension was heavy. As we passed beneath the exit sign, we were bathed in an eerie red glow. We'd reached the church offices and the new Sunday school classrooms. And then finally, we reached the far side of the building. We passed through the big double doors into the new sanctuary. It was large and cavernous tall ceilings and rows of pews leading up to a big state-of-the-art stage. The sanctuary had worship music playing over the speakers around the clock to bless the building and to keep the space holy. The stage had long wraparound stairs so you could walk up there from any side. And front and center, at the top of those stairs, was a big wooden altar. It must have weighed 500 pounds. Our assistant pastor actually broke his foot when they moved it and he put it down wrong. On the altar, there was a collection of candles with glass chimneys around them. Just like the music, the candles burned 24 hours a day. The church leaders referred to it as the eternal light, a reminder that God's justice is perfect and that he doesn't make mistakes. I could feel the tension in my body as Cam and I stood there, taking in the big room. I looked up to the tech booth on the back wall of the sanctuary. It was about 20 feet up and it looked like a balcony sticking out into the room. I gestured up at the balcony and Cam finally spoke. Do you want to go up? He asked. I took his hand, and we went to the door at the back wall. It led to a stairwell that took you up to the booth. From up here, we could see the entire room, cavernous and empty and bathed in blue light. There was a heavy darkness hanging over the baptistry behind the stage. It made the whole place feel a little dangerous. I liked that. I felt his fingers graze against mine. He didn't pull away, and neither did I. I pressed my shoulder to his as we stood side by side. My adrenaline was pumping, my heart beating, and my head was feeling light. The feeling you get when you know it's inevitable. I turned to face him, and he did the same. Our eyes met. My expression was confident. He took a step in and closed the distance between us. His fingertips had been grazing the back of my hand, but now they were gliding up and down the length of my arms, leaving a trail of goosebumps in his wake. I closed my eyes and I let the sensation wash over me. I let out a little sigh just as he grazed over my shoulders and collarbones I gave him a look that said are you gonna do it or not and he did our lips met first in gentle grazes then they became firm hard kisses my hands found his hips and worked their way up his sides and then to his chest and neck. We stay like this for a while, kissing and touching in the blue moonlight coming in through the windows. I like these moments, but my mind wants more. As I lay awake in my bed at home, my body is tense and expectant. I feel his hands, my hands, tracing the side of my neck. He takes my hand and lifts it up, spinning me around so my back is to his chest. He pulls me tight against him, he traces my lips with his finger, then he moves gently from my mouth, down my neck, then tracing my sternum, he makes his way down my stomach. My eyes have been closed, but I open them, looking out into the sanctuary. And suddenly, I feel a wave of fear. From the corner of my eye, there's movement. There's someone in the sanctuary. I try to say something, but my words catch in my throat. A figure comes into view, walking slowly down one of the aisles between the pews. It's the figure of a man dressed all in black. He's almost blurry at the edges. Cam hasn't seen him yet. He's still kissing my neck and running his hand down my stomach. I'm breathing heavy. His fingertips graze over where my hip bones meet the waist of my jeans. I feel like I might hyperventilate. Like I might faint. Then he finds my top button and expertly pops it open the figure stopped and turned toward the sound even though he looked directly at us I couldn't see his face and then no I can't I can't do this laid there in bed my mind startled by the turn my fantasy had taken and my body still tense from the lack of release i looked at my alarm clock big orange numbers it was almost two in the morning off in the distance i heard a low growling thunder outside of my window The faint flashing of lightning far off on the horizon lit up my otherwise dark room. I kept my eyes on the window, not because of the oncoming storm, but because of an irrational fear that comes over me every time I do what I just did. I have this feeling that I'm being watched. I feel like I'm being watched all the time. I know it's wrong to fantasize about having sex in the church. But when I think about it happening at home, it just doesn't feel real. I can't even make the fantasy work. I'd be so terrified of my parents finding out that it ruins it, even in my mind. And the church, well, that's where I see Cam. It's the place that feels the most real. I want to be a good Christian so badly. It's what I try to organize my life around. So why am I not able to keep these feelings under control? Just then, I was startled by a loud peal of thunder. Something changed in the room. I looked over at my alarm clock again. The orange numbers on the display were gone. The power had gone out i got up and i went to the kitchen to find a candle i lit it and made my way back to my bathroom i stood in front of the mirror the light filling up the room and i got lost in my thoughts again usually after i give in to my body i feel ashamed or disgusted with myself but sometimes Sometimes I feel powerful and defiant. It's almost like the feeling comes from somewhere outside of myself. It's been happening more often lately. That thought again. Has the world gotten to you? I think back to that night in the sixth grade, when we'd been found out for dabbling with witchcraft and the adults all prayed over us. The other girls who were there at those sleepovers never brought it up again. For them, it's like it never happened. And I forgot about it for a while too. But for the past few months, ever since this summer began, I couldn't forget that night when all the adults prayed over us, the look of concern in their eyes. When this feeling comes over me, I can't help but wonder if maybe their prayers didn't work for me. I remembered looking into that mirror when we played Bloody Mary in the sixth grade. That last moment before Amy blew out the candle, not recognizing my own face. I have a secret. A secret I haven't told anyone yet. As I stood in my own bathroom, I watched the smoke from my candle zigzag upward, chaotic and frantic motions, and I stare at my face in the mirror. There was a reason I worried that my parents' prayers didn't work all those years ago. I reached my hand just inches from the edge of the candle's flame. I took in the frenetic energy of the smoke rising from the wick, the feeling of chaos. I imagined that the candle and I were connected and that we were feeling the same thing. And I focused on the smoke dancing off of the flame. I took a deep breath and made my mind go still. And just like that, instantly, like flipping a switch, the smoke rose in a straight line. No more erratic dancing, no more chaos. Back in the mirror, I still looked like me, but something was off. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thirteen. If you like what you heard, stop what you're doing and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This was The Fall of 98, Part 1, The End of Summer, written by Ian Epperson, narrated by me, Brooke Jeanette. Val with Shelby Scott, music, editing, and sound design by Caleb Ritchie, with a major assist from Josiah Knight and Bridget Howard. Our producer-level patrons are Rick Linville, Tattooed Fox, Rhiannon, Sean Geary, Anthony Diaz, Paul Doyle, Amy Harper, Delta Tango, Jackie Kay, Taylor Crabb, and Chantelle Payne. Thank you so much for your support. Our patrons get access to an exclusive Discord channel to chat with the creators and a second monthly reading. Merch, bloopers, behind-the-scenes content, and weekly updates on the show. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at some version of 13Pod or Pod13. Just look for the logo. We'll have links in the show notes. If you'd like to submit a story to be performed on the show or to contact us about anything else, get in touch at info at podcastcom You can find that in the show notes too. Bridget Howard is looking back at you through the mirror. Thanks for listening. See you next week.